Hey, thank you for joining us online today. We are so glad that you've joined us. Every week, people uh, from all over the world are watching with us. So we're glad today that you're here with us as we proclaim God's gospel and God's word. Uh, before we get started today, we want to let you know that this sermon is not meant to replace uh, the local and biblical community that you need to be a part of and the local church that you need to be involved in. This uh, sermon is supplemental uh, to you sitting under the care of a local church pastor um, and the care of a local church family. Uh, because Christianity is not about individual persons, it is about a people, it is about the church. So if you live anywhere in around the Middle Tennessee area, we would love for you to join us at one of our local campuses. Um, if you live outside of that area, we'd love to connect you to a good church. Uh, if you'll reach out to us through Facebook, through Twitter, Instagram, if you'll email us, we want to help you find a good, healthy, uh, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church that you can connect to, that you can plug into, and you can find life and live sin. So we want to help you do that. We pray that hope that this sermon and these messages bless you, and you please reach out to us and let us know how we can help. Let's go ahead and get your Bibles out. Let's go John chapter 5. Um, if, uh, if you have not been with us in our entire study through the Gospel of John, uh, I want to encourage you online. All of the sermons are there uh, to catch up with us, or, or better yet, your, your Bible is sufficient to do that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, come see me after service right outside the door to the right. Uh, might be a paperback. If you're really quick, it might be one that someone left last week. Um, I'll get it to you. But uh, what we've been looking at, here's an overview, kind of catching everybody up. Chapter 1, uh, since this whole st series is called Jesus, uh, chapter 1 was about the eternality of Jesus Christ. That he has always existed before the foundation of the world. He was in fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That Jesus Christ was, uh, he was the agent of creation. He wasn't created. Uh, and nothing was created without him. Right, uh, he was the eternal Word of God um, who becomes man or becomes man in flesh. Like he lives with us, he dwells with us. So that's what we saw in chapter one. Well, in chapters two through four, as Jesus kind of starts his his three year journey of missionary work of soul winning, uh, we see the response of the people to Jesus. That's what we've seen in verses or chapters two through four. We have seen a curiosity in Jesus. He is the miracle man. He's the healer. Um, he's doing many great wonders and signs, water to wine. He's doing a lot of things. And then now there's a curiosity that begins to follow him. The crowds begin to get bigger and bigger. All seems to be going really well, except for last week we saw Jesus challenge and rebuke those with a superficial sign seeker faith, the people that are just looking for Jesus out of what they can get out of him. And he very clearly speaks and rebukes those people. But up to the point, really, in, in chapter 4, he's the hero. He is the healer, as I said. He's the miracle man. Crowds are falling. His reputation is great. But what begins to happen today is in chapter 5, there begins to be a transition to the response of Jesus. It goes from curiosity to opposition, from interest to persecution, mostly uh, being ignited by the religious Jews, the Gestapos, who were really out to seek and kill him 
and destroy him. Well, why, did, why is there a sudden change? Why is it now going from, from the, the following of Jesus, the likelihood of him, just knowing him, to now they want to hunt and kill him? Well, the story today in chapter 5 is going to tell us what ignited this transition. And it was the healing of a man on the Sabbath. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And we're going to see today this story uh, take place. And before we even go there, let's make sure we do not get lost up in a story about physical healing. We'll talk about that. But this story is not about a physical healing. This story is about a spiritual healing that we all need and that only Jesus Christ can do that. And then when Jesus heals physically, as he will this man in the story, there's always a greater purpose for the healing. He heals this man. He heals all of us for holiness, for the sake of holiness. So that's what we'll look at today, Jesus' healing for holiness. Let's pray before we get into the text. Father, you are uh, here among us. You beat us here this morning. You beat everybody here this morning. You woke up before all of us, and you were anxiously waiting, anticipating uh, the worship of your people. I pray that this church today, this gathering, is pleasing to your ears with the songs that we're singing, uh, with our ears being lended to you now. Uh, Father, we, we pray that you meet us right in our seats today, and then you take us to where you are, to closer to you. Father, to the hurting, would you bring healing? Lord, to the one who's drowning in apathy, would you bring zeal? Uh, Father, for the, for the fatigued, would you bring refreshment? To those here that are numb, would you bring sensitivity? God, for those that are confident, would you bring humility? And God, those who are spiritually dead, would you bring life? We do all, all those things. We ask all those things in your name because we believe that reading and studying your word is sufficient to do all of those things I've just named. I am not, but God, you are. So let us read your word. We praise you and thank you for your son, Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so chapter 5, we're going to go 1 through 5. And let's look at what's going on. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. All right, so let's talk about this for a second. Um, when, when, uh, right out of the gate, when John says, after this, after this means an undetermined time. So this is an undetermined time from the closing of chapter 4 after the healing of the centurion official. We don't know the exact immediacy of what's happening. We just know it's after this. We also don't know uh, where he, uh, he's going up to this feast in Jerusalem. We don't know what feast it is. We don't know if it's a feast of the Passover, uh, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Pentecost. We don't know. But here's what we always know when we in, and get into a place of Scripture where it's not clear is we know what we need to know. Right? We, we know what is sufficient for us, and we have to rest peacefully there. And that's where the story is. He's gone back up to Jerusalem. And here's what the scene is. And this is what I've been very excited about sharing with you uh, to set up the scene today. 
in my trip to Israel last February, we visited uh, the scene of, of our story today, the narrative. Let's look at this. Let me show you this area. This is uh, the pool of Bethesda. All right, you see a scene that's happening here. This is called the House of Mercy. That's what Bethesda means, mercy. And in the scene here, you can, you can see the rubble of the five colonnades that we see in the scripture we just read. We see a pool here, which we'll talk about that a little bit more. There seems to be somewhat of another semblance of a pool here. Can't really see it defined. But this is the scene of this miracle that is taking place today. Bethesda, the house of mercy. And in the house of mercy, in Jerusalem, there is said to be a sheep gate. Now, I don't know in this picture specifically where the sheep gate is. It could have been here, it could have been somewhere else, because there is a lot of rubble over the thousands of years. But here's what we know. The sheep gate is a gate where the sacrificial animals would be brought through in order to bring to the temple for sacrifice, right? Lamb. Now here you see two things happening of always things pointing to Christ. We have a sheep gate, Jesus Christ entering into the sheep gate who would be the final Passover lamb, the final sacrificial lamb for the forgiveness of sins. And he's coming into the house of mercy where only Christ brings mercy to the sinners. There are no trivial words um, in the word of God. Nothing trivial. Everything has meaning great importance, even geographical and topographical events all have a message. So this is the scene, once again, as, as Jesus, who has not come on the scene yet, but this, this courtyard would have looked uh, very populated, as it's called the house of mercy, but it really more probably resembled the house of misery. Because entering in here would have been a multitude of invalids, uh, the paralytic, the lame, the blind, the afflicted, the unable to move. They would have been all over this courtyard waiting around the pool of Bethesda. Why? Why are they waiting around the pool? Why are they have collected and migrated to this specific area uh, for this purpose. If you've been to uh, Bangkok before, uh, this would have been the scene, maybe if you've ridden on the, the BTS, the public transit system, when you walk through, uh, you see at the, at the stops, there's all of the, the beggars, the paralytic, the lame, the blind. It is a broken-hearted scene, all just sitting there waiting for mercy. And that is the scene of what's happening in this courtyard. What's up with the pool? Why? Well, why are they waiting by this pool? What's going on around this area? Why have they populated? Now, you might have noticed um, in the text that verse 4 is missing. We skipped right over it. It is missing in the ESV, uh, the NIV, the NASB, where it is actually included in the King James Version, New King James, and some translations, even the CSB, has verse 4. So what's going on? Why is it not in some but in other? Well, the versions, are the, I'm sorry, the translations that had verse 4 gave us the reason why they were populated here. Verse 4 in those translations say that periodically an angel would come down and stir up or trouble up the waters. They would begin to bubble and then the first paralytic, the first invalid who would enter into the pool would be healed. That was the story. Now, why is it missing in some translations? 
I believe, we believe upon really some exhaustive study this week, that in the earliest of Greek translations, the verse 4 was not included in the original text. It was a footnote in the margins that somehow got worked into other translations uh, and just wasn't, wasn't factual, right? We don't know if it was superstition or if it was a well springing up, but we believe that it's not essential to the narrative, or, nor is it doctrinally uh, secure. We don't have to know these things. We just, we just lay this up to show you that this is why they were there. All right, that's what was said. So they're sitting there. They're, the scene is they're all around. They're just ready to go. It's like the Hunger Games. As soon as the water begins to bubble, there's this mad dash and rush to the pool. And whoever gets in the waters first are healed. That's the picture of what we are seeing. Now, this is not just a scene uh, around the pool of 2,000 years ago that we've seen. This is not just a scene of physical invalids with all of their impairments and, and limitations and, 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 and paralyzed nature. This is a picture of all of spiritual total depravity of all of us. This is us before Christ, all sons and daughters of Adam. This is all of us in our born condition. Beggars, paralytic, lame, unable to do anything to save ourselves. We see the vestiges of our own sin all over this story. This is not about physical healing. If you don't see that, we can't go anywhere else today. We, we can't go anywhere. If you don't think that you were like these people in this courtyard, you cannot see and savor the mercy of Jesus Christ. You'll never see it. This is us, right? This is our position. And we find ourselves very similar to all of these people. Paul, Paul in Romans, uh, Romans 5, 6 tells us that we are the weak we are the invalid, is what he calls us, without strength, unable to do anything for ourselves. There's a word that describes us before Christ is invalid. Sitting around, waiting by a pool, waiting around for healing. This is our story. These people in their desperate condition will succumb to any kind of superstition, rumor, whatever it is that they think. They'll, they're, they're that desperate in the world that they would put all of their hopes into this pool and this water, only it would always fall short and leave them in the state of desperation. It would never heal what they truly needed to be healed for. It was insufficient. It was an impotent source for healing. Now, we often do the same thing. We have hurts, we have pains, we have uh, suffering in our own life. We identify with these people. And instead of running to Jesus Christ as the source for healing, we run off to superstitions, worldly methods. We run off to self-help, right? We run off to yoga, 
Oprahology. Uh, we run off to, to uh, just the spiritual realm or whatever that really means. We run off to all of these worldly superstition things, putting all our hope in them to save and heal us, only the fact that they never, never do. They always fall short. And that's disappointing. But here's the great part of the truth here is that in those places, when all those things fail, Jesus finds us in those places. He finds us, as Jeremiah tells, we, we look for broken cisterns and empty wells to satisfy us. Jesus always finds us in there. He finds his sheep. He says, I'll satisfy. You need me, right? So we're finding ourselves in the story. Uh, so in this picture, we are introduced to a man, a paralytic man who's been an invalid for 38 years. Years, y'all, 38 years, long time. There might be some people in here today that have been spiritually sick for 38 years. Long-suffering, patient, putting all of his hope in a pool. Let's look at what happens in the story. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus knows how long this man was waiting, and Jesus knows how long you've been waiting he said to him, do you want to be healed? Seems like a strange question. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And now that day was the Sabbath. What a sight for uh, the great physician to look upon as he entered into this courtyard. The whole courtyard, all of the people in the world must have looked like a huge hospital. Laying around, sick people, unable to heal themselves. And Jesus comes up to this one man. He only has eyes for one man this day. Because he's never really been into the crowds, remember? His eyes on the ones and the twos. That's what he's been doing in the story. He seeks out this man. Note in the text, it says this man didn't look for Jesus. He didn't call out to Jesus. He didn't even acknowledge Jesus. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't know anything about him. And yet Jesus found him. This is a repetitive doctrine in the Scriptures. Jesus finds people. May we never, ever, ever get sick and tired of hearing this doctrine that it is Jesus who finds people we do not find Jesus ever, ever. Please do not say that. We don't find Jesus. He finds us. When we're not looking for him, we don't know him. He calls unto us. It's why we sing the great song of Come Thou Fount. We said, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. That's us. Strangers wandering from the fold of God, and then Jesus finds us. That's a treasure. That is a treasure. If you believe that anything in you found Jesus, that peace that you're holding on to, it will hold back your worship to Jesus. It will not give him unto great glory, all the glory he's due. You will be withholding some of that glory for him. Understand, he called you, he saved you, he found you. Right? And that's why we praise his name. Now, 
Notice the compassion of Jesus, okay? So he enters into uh, this courtyard and it's afflicted with all the lame and the paralytic. He didn't have to go there, right? He, he, he didn't stumble upon the house of, house of Bethesda. He, he didn't have another agenda. He came and he went right to it because that's what Jesus always do. He moves towards the sinners. He doesn't go away from them. He doesn't go deal with the religious and the elite. He moves toward the sinners. The sinner. He didn't wander around. Think about how easy that would have been for you and me to go around that. I don't want to go there. All those people there? That's uncomfortable. That's weird. They're, they're dirty. I don't want to go around all of those people, but that's not how Jesus plays it. He goes right to them. And we see in this ourselves, and we often we have to look and ask ourselves the same questions. What do we do when we see people like this? First of all, that's everybody who's not in Christ. right? I said our fallen condition. That's the picture. All of the paralytics, the lame, the blind. That's all people who do not know Jesus. What do you do when you see them? Do you walk around them? Because they're not like you and they make you uncomfortable and you don't want to be around them? Or do you walk to them? That's what Jesus did. He walked towards the sinner. You walk around people that are not like you. These people were not like Jesus. He walked right to them. That's what we have to do. That's what we're seeing in this story. Then he asked him this question. His first interaction, Jesus comes on the scene. The only question he asks, he says, do you want to be healed? Now that seems like an odd question, right? He knows he's been there a long time. He knows he's been Afflicted for 38 years. Uh, Durr, Jesus. Yeah, he wants to be healed, right? That's what we're thinking. Why would you ask this question? Like, is Jesus trying to get information out of him? No, because Jesus never learns anything from us. He doesn't need to know anything from us. He asks the question. It's always so that we would learn something about ourselves. And he's saying to this man, it's not about physical healing. He's asking, do you really want to be healed? Do you truly want the kind of healing that I offer? That's the question he's asking. Now that seems, still maybe even seems like a strange question. But you and I live in a world every day where we see people that don't want the kind of healing that Jesus offers. We see them all over the place. We see people who are clothed in misery and they like it. Right? They, they actually, man, they find their identity in their misery. And in fact, healing and becoming well would actually be a very fearful thing for them because they might be abandoned once the focal point is not their misery anymore. You know people like this, right? Look at me. I'm miserable all the time. They don't really want healing. Think about the repeat offender in the correctional system. Right In a state of imprisonment, misery, captivity, they get out. They find freedom only to find that they can't function in that. That's life. I'd rather commit a crime and go right back into misery. Get back into the correctional system. Not all people want to be healed. Not all people. Addicts, right? We know, you, you probably know an addict, Right? Not all people want to be healed. That's why Jesus is asking this question. 
Now, he doesn't answer the question. He doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He just says, I got nobody to put me in the pool. My friends, they dip out. I don't know where they're at. They're not as fast as everybody else. I'm lonely. I'm here desperate. I can't get up. And I've got no one here to put me in the pool at this moment. You and I must understand this man is not deserving of any mercy from Jesus. He has not acknowledged him. He didn't say, yes, Jesus, I want to be healed. Would you save my soul? He didn't say that. doesn't acknowledge him. Undeserving of mercy and with a word, get up. Take up your bed and walk. With a single word from Jesus, his atrophied legs are healed. He gets up and walks. No PT, no rehab. Instantly, with a word from Jesus, he demonstrates his sovereign power over disease and sickness, his dominion. They bow at his word. Now, sometimes we forget, we forget that Lord, the same Lord that's demonstrating dominion over sickness and disease exists today, the same Jesus. Same ability, same power to heal. This is why Christians pray for healing. You do need to pray to the one that sickness and disease bow down to. Christians, you pray for healing. But you also pray for God's will to be done as well because sometimes His will is not to heal the way that we think we need to be healed. Sometimes there are a hundred things going on that we never see behind his lack of healing that's why we say god heal it's my heart's desire that you heal but nevertheless your will be done that's how our prayer language in our life should look because disease is no match for jesus all right so this man gets healed he takes up his bed he walks He's a new man, right? Only the problem is this. He does it on the Sabbath, and that incites this response. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. This is kind of like, Adam throwing Eve under the bus. That's what's happening here. He's throwing Jesus under the bus. I didn't do it. I just did what he told me to do. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So as I said, this, uh, the religious leaders, the, the religious Gestapo, the crooked police... They find out that Jesus has told a man on the Sabbath to pick up his bed and walk. And instead of them rejoicing that this man had been healed, a man that they would have said they loved because their law told them they would love him. That's right. But instead of them loving, rejoicing, celebrating, they get their holy hands in a bunch because he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath. That's what's happening. They can't even, they, they get lost in the celebration of the whole thing and they're focusing, you can't pick up your bed. 
You, you can't do these things. That's labor on the Sabbath. I mean, how cold-hearted and calloused are these people, right? Healing. God has just done a miracle in their face, and they cannot get around their own religious piety of a violation of their Sabbath laws. Now, here's the point. This man and this whole situation was not a violation of the Sabbath. It was a violation of their 39 twisted addendums to the Sabbath. They had imparted their own traditions and added things to God's law. Uh, Jeremiah talks about, I think it's in Jeremiah 22, speaks to a, a law that, that you could not carry a handkerchief from a room to a room because that would be a violation of the Sabbath because Jeremiah says you can't carry a burden on the Sabbath. You can't carry that handkerchief. Now, what you can do, they made a provision for that. They said, if you take that handkerchief and you just tie it around your side, you can walk with it. You can go anywhere you want to. That wouldn't be a violation of the Sabbath. That's how crazy this was. They added and added and added things to God's law in an effort to make themselves look so much better. The unattainable, right? They added their own preferences, their own traditions into God's law. And so a great lesson for us to be learned here is the dangers of us adding extra biblical things to God's word. Becoming like these people, right? For our own preference, for our own piety, to make ourselves feel better, to twist them to justify the things that we do. What a great caution that we would be not like these people. How do we do those things? What are some ways that we begin to fall into the failures of these religious Jews? When we say things like, alcohol is a sin. When we say things like, well, you are supposed to sing hymns in church and you can't sing contemporary songs. You have to dress this way when you go to church. You can play these instruments, but you can't play these. Or divorce. Here's one. Well, Moses said it was permissible. He gave me a reason so I could do it no matter what. Well, Moses said it was permissible but not prescribed. We take things out of context and we add stuff to it to justify our own actions. We take God's good command of provision. Man, provide for your family. We take that and it feeds into workaholism where we're addicted to our jobs and money and power and we try to fall back on. Well, God said work. We're supposed to work and provide. We take God's good commands and we twist them for our own good. Man, we need to be careful and guarded when we add to the Word of God. There's great uh, caution that needs to be felt in that moment. Let's keep going. And this is in verse 14. Uh, this is where we will park uh, for our, our theme to reiterate our bottom line today. Here's Jesus. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Jesus found him again. He didn't find Jesus. Jesus found him See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, Jesus hunts him down, finds him again. And what he's really trying to communicate to him and to us is that he really wasn't just trying to heal this man physically. He wanted to heal him spiritually, right? Heal for the sake of holiness, now, we can also infer that this man had been in a calamity for 38 years because of his own sin. 
That's why he said, so that sin no more, so that nothing else may happen to you that's worse. You're in this condition now because of your own sin, is what he's saying to him. Right? Remember when Jesus called out the adulterous woman? He said, go and sin no more. She clearly was in that position because of her own sin. Sin brings consequences. Now, let me be careful and say this up top. Not all of our physical ailments are a result of our own individual sin. Right? Many times that is not the case, but there are instances clearly where we suffer physically because of our own sin. The promiscuous man or woman who contracts a sexually transmitted disease by our own hand. The drunk who abuses his liver, develops cirrhosis because he can't put the bottle down. The individual who misuses or abuses an opiate or prescription medication only to dumb the brain down. Man, sin has consequences on the body. Many times it is by our own hand. Now, maybe you've heard the adage before about sin, that it'll take you further than you want to go, it'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will always do that with you. We cannot say that we have a deep fellowship with God when we frequently visit the alleys of sin that God would never go to. That's why Paul said in Romans Five, to put to death the deeds of the body. Kill sin in our life. To kill it. Sadly, we often try to train it, don't we? We try to put it on a leash, a little baby tiger called Fluffy, not knowing that it actually will grow up one day and eat us alive. We try to take our pet sin and we just pray about our pet sin. All we do is pray about our pet sin when we've done it again. We are only trying to train our sin. We're not trying to kill our sin. And that is why he healed this man for holiness. Go and sin no more. Go and bear my name is what he tells him. He told him his name. My name's Jesus. I'm the one that did it. Now, People, church, this is us. This is how God saved you if you are in Christ today. Invalid, not seeking Jesus Christ, unable to heal yourself. Jesus finds you, heals you, and then comes and puts his hands on you and says, I healed you for holiness to bear my name. To bear my name. There's a story about Alexander the Great, one of the greatest rulers of all time. And in Alexander the Great's army, there was a soldier whose name was also Alexander. This young soldier was found guilty of conduct unbecoming of a soldier in the army. He was accused of being lazy, disobedient, cowardice in the battle, to which his Crimes were punishable by being set fire alive. Alexander the Great sent for this young man to bring him before him. and He's standing before Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great said, son, what's your name? He said, Alexander. 
Uh, son, can you speak up a little louder? I didn't hear you. Alexander. And he repeated it again. He said, son, speak louder. What is your name? And the kid said, Alexander. And Alexander the Great looked at him. He said, son, you either change your behavior or you change your name. Change your behavior or change your name. Christian, if you are Christian and there's anything in your life that is unbecoming of God's good name, of Jesus' precious name, unholy in your life, either change your behavior or change your name. If only time you read your Bible is when I preach it to you on Sunday, change your behavior or change your name. If the only time that you pray is in moments of desperation and despair when you need something, change your behavior or change your name. If your tongue is often an agent of destruction, of discouragement, gossip, judgmentalism, instead of an agent or a vessel of encouragement and praise, change your behavior or change your name. If you're a regular practicer of sexual immorality, drunkenness, jealousy, judgmentalism, change your behavior or change your name. If you're a Christian and you say, this is my church, I identify with this church, but yet you only show up to this gathering occasionally and you're not connected here, listen, change your behavior or change your name. If you call yourself a Christian and you see no need to belong, to be a member, or be known at a church, change your behavior or change your name. If you are ashamed, if you are embarrassed to profess and share Christ before men and women, change your behavior or change your name. God has sought you and bought you with a high price of his son. He set you apart for you to bear his name, to be holy. And we as Christians, we know we're not going to be perfect. But we are called to be a holy people. And this is not just, hey, go be holy. This is for happiness. You see, this is the twisted reality that sometimes we believe being holy is just being obedient. No, God's word says that when you are holy, when you pursue holiness... That is actually the place that you'll find true happiness. There's life on the other side of obedience, of all of God's good commands. Let's keep going with this text, and we'll close out in verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking to, all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Once again, they're accusing him of healing a man on the Sabbath, which was also uh, another violation of their twisted addendums. Why, why is it that Jesus chose this day to do this. 
Why not the day before? Why not the day after? Why you got to go after the Sabbath, Jesus? Why you, you got to stir it up? Right? It's because he wasn't just trying to heal a man. He was trying to heal a system. He was trying to heal this superficial, elite, broken, messed up, jacked up view of who God was by these religious Jews. They had tried to add so many things. And his response at the end there in verse 18, it's, it's another one of those mic drop moments. We talk about those often where Jesus just says, boom, right? He just lays it down. He says, hey, my daddy works on Sunday, so I'm working on Sunday too. Matter of fact, we made Sundays, right? That's what he's saying. He's claiming equality with God. Sabbath breaker, because he's the Sabbath maker, it says he is equal with God. And for that reason, and that reason alone, the Jews begin hunting down our Savior of the world, to kill him and put him on a cross. The only thing they didn't know was that was the plan the whole time. Man, there's this story of what John's doing. He's done it again. Each week, man, he he has shown us this mirror of ourself every week. First, it was the Samaritan woman. We saw that we were just like her. And then there's the centurion official who just wanted Jesus for what he could do for him. And we saw ourselves in there. And he's done it again today. The paralytic, the beggars, the lame, sitting there trying to call out, do everything we can do to save ourselves. And he says, no, I'm going to meet you right here. This is our picture. This is us. And I, I believe there are two people here today. There are the people that are still sitting around waiting by the pool. Waiting for something to happen. You're just like these people. Waiting and waiting and waiting. You won't come to Jesus because you don't think you need him. Running to false impotent waters to solve and save and cure our hearts. Jesus is the only one that can step in right there. If you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, I pray today that you do. That he begins to heal that hole in your heart that has been there from the beginning. And you try to stuff things in it your whole life and you can't do it. It's always empty. It's because Jesus is the one that fills this hole in your heart. I pray today that he moves you. That he would say today, get up, rise, walk. He did this healing on the Sabbath. Today is our our Sabbath day. That he would do a miracle in this place today and heal the spiritually sick. And there are those that you've been healed by Jesus. You know the healing power of Jesus. But we forget, we run to these empty, broken cisterns and empty wells that Jeremiah speaks of, we run back to other things to try to satisfy that he would woo us back to him with compassion and remind us that he is our healer. Every day there's an ongoing violent battle in your heart between autonomous self-rule and the holiness of Jesus. Every single day, every single one of us. 
And I pray that you remember our, the gospel of how he saved us and that we would begin to be a people that eliminate and eradicate all areas in our life that are unholy and unbecoming of his name. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for a place to, to gather, to shield, to find sanctuary from the world and here, to read your word, your life-giving word, your healing word. Still marvel that you would even ask me to do this. Father, I pray today that this word, just a story, the study of Scripture, just moves people. That some today would cry out, heal me, Jesus, because I can't. And the Father, that we would be a church that leaves here a people pursuing holiness for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We will uh, give you just a moment to respond in, in, in individually ways as God meets us where we sit. You might want to get up and just move. You might get up and walk. Walk out the door, come out the back, talk to somebody. I'll be back there. Matt will be back there. Uh, other people will be back there to help you walk through some things today. Questions. I'm praying God save some of you today. That he brings salvation to this house of mercy. Man, respond how the Lord leads you. We'll take up our tithes after that uh, because it's a, it's a part of our life where we're trying to pursue holiness so that God's message of the gospel can go around the world so that more sick sinners can be saved. So thank you for your faithfulness in that. Thank you for your faithfulness in studying with us. Uh, thank you for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.